Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Charles Nuatu. I met Charles at the Synapse Conference last year, where we spoke together on a panel about security and privacy. Charles began his security career when he was recruited by the NSA and worked for several years in the federal government at DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency. He then moved west to focus on technology and startups. Charles has held security leadership roles at LinkedIn, Twilio, and Stitch Fix. He is currently the engineering manager of corporate security at Netflix. Charles, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Caroline. It is my absolute pleasure. So I like to start out a little bit with asking about your origin story. And this is something that I know you've talked about uh, before, um, but for the sake of the Humans of InfoSec podcast listeners, uh, I understand you were recruited by the NSA. I'd actually like to ask you a question about earlier than that, which is, how did you become interested in computer science? Well, for me, I think uh, it all started with the purchase of a Tandy computer that my father brought back, uh, back home when I was, I think, around maybe eight or nine years old. Um, I really wanted to be a nurse. Uh, and the reason why is because my mother was a nurse and I just liked the idea of helping people. And um, it just resonated with me to be like helpful around people. And with good health, you can do many things. But once I saw this Tandy computer and then my, my dad brought home one evening, I, like my brother and I, we like, we literally took it apart and, uh, and then we tried to put it back together again. And uh, that didn't really work out so well. But it was intriguing to me just to see this machine and have like a text processor at the time. And it was just like really intriguing. That really got me excited about the computer space, uh, the idea of working with this type of technology. My goal at some point was to always return to health, but I just have not found that bridge in terms of bringing the IT slash security component into the healthcare space. That was uh, intriguing enough for me to, to pursue. But I think my first love has always been health and the computers just sort of presented itself at a young age and I just sort of pivoted to that area and sort of grown with that ever since and going into college at Penn State University and getting my degree in uh, information systems. Very cool. And my understanding is that when you were at Penn State or perhaps as you were emerging from Penn State, you were actually recruited by the NSA. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? Were you, were you familiar with the NSA and their mission prior to sort of joining? Um, what did that feel like as an undergrad who was entering the workforce? So I think one of the interesting things was that at the time, the federal government had a program called the uh, Information Assurance Scholarship Program. IASP that was, I think, funded between the, you know, Fed, the DOD as a whole to try to get individuals into security in the federal government. Uh, I was extremely excited to be one of the first recipients of the scholarship at Penn State. And it just was intriguing to say, hey, you know, 
at a time when you know finding a job out coming out of school could be difficult at least i knew that i had a place to get into and learning the ropes within the security world in the federal government as a civilian was very interesting to say the least and the lot the experiences that i've gained from uh, working with in, within DISA, the Defense Information Systems Agency, and the National Security Agency was was very uh, sh like shaped my career uh, for for lack of a better word. Very exciting times. Learned a lot of things about relationships and just how do you present security at different realms, and understanding that moving things within the federal government is a slow, uh, tedious process. But once you start seeing the change of the machine happen. It is so gratifying. That's awesome. You have described security work at the federal government using a gardening analogy. I've heard you say it's kind of like you plant a seed and then you tend to it and you sort of trim it and you water it. And over time, you can have this sort of deep satisfaction that comes from using something. Um, and in particular in startups, you can sort of go to Home Depot and buy the plant. Can you tell me a little bit about your decision to move out of the federal sector and into the technology and the startup world? Yeah, that actually was a conversation with my mentor at the time uh, while still in the federal government. And he basically said, Charles, you must leave the federal government for the sake of your career and if you ever want to get back into this space in the in the public sector, leave. And I was sort of blown back by that. But he said, like the it, the experience that you have gained by going into private industry, and the background that you've gained in working in the federal and the DoD space, hopefully in time once you get older, will allow you to return to help uh, shape vision for uh, the federal government. So that really was the impetus of me moving out west, uh, as they would say, uh, not not for the gold rush per se, but just the idea of like, and Silicon Valley is seen as you know, the pinnacle of engineers. And if I wanted to really test my security chops and with the top engineers of the world, I, you know, I had a discussion with my wife and said, I would like to you know, cast a wider net, get out of the security clearance world and move out to the startup world. Uh, and then that was the basically the pitch that I uh, gave her and she said like, Larry, let's do it. And that uh, afforded me my first opportunity working at LinkedIn uh, under the tutelage of Mr. Corey Scott and building out uh, information and incident response platforms. And I have to say that it was uh, like night and day coming from a world from the federal side where there are rules, regulations, um, Stigs or just security technical implementation guides to warn orders that are basically, you know, the, the letter of the law as to how you operate within the federal and the DOD space into an environment where you are enabling engineers to be the creative selves that they are to develop the artwork that is necessary for the business to thrive. And how do I, as a security practitioner, take the learnings from some would say a more rigid environment? and blend them into an environment where there's freedom and flexibility, uh, you know, responsibility around the individuals to do what's best on behalf of the business. And I think for me personally, that was like the hurdle, the mental hurdle that I had to clear for me to be successful in the Bay Area. That's incredible. Uh, what a neat 
comparison. Uh, and I will say that from my perspective, when I think about your experience and what you bring to the table as a security leader, to me, it seems like you're that much stronger for having worked in both very different areas, uh, because I expect that the types of problems that you were trying to solve, as well as the approaches that you used, um, were very different. And so uh, simply by having tried different things and watched some things work and some things not work so well, um, you know, I think that that makes what you bring to the table that much stronger. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about something that I've heard you say that resonates with me a lot, <laughs> which is prevention never works. Um, that idea combined with the concept of a detection engineer. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience and your thoughts on incident response planning? So yeah, this is something that like my background in the federal government was incident response. And this is something that like usually called like people's passion. Like this is my passion. This is what I enjoy the most. And something about the idea that we live in a world or we work, we, we live in a world that's complex overall. And then we're building these engineering systems that are inherently complex. We move from monolithic infrastructures to decentralized uh, service mesh oriented infrastructures. And the idea that these things don't fail is, is backwards thinking in my eyes. And that's how I, I started thinking about, well, as a detection engineer and someone who's on the IR side, would it be possible to sort of collect all, like collect as much of the inputs as possible and to provide a different approach as to how to focus security initiatives? And if I worry about prevention, I believe that's a losing battle. But if I can increase my confidence around uh, the current posture of an environment, the ability to detect the things that are important to the business in terms of business risk, that will shape how I respond. So that's like the premise of my hypothesis. But there's different stages in order to get there. Like to me, the first step is, you know, like if I'm into a new organization, the first thing I like to do is just say, what's our incident response plan? If we don't have one, let's create one. Uh, because the, my, my worst case scenario is, look, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I can at least say I gave you a document that sort of goes through the runbook as to how you should participate and act out an incident when and if it happens to a company. So let's just build that muscle memory around performing tabletop activities around data breaches or incident breaches or the idea of data manipulation and data integrity issues. How would we respond? And one of the things that you brought up around like the background and how that facilitates how I look at things is the fact that incident response is more of a, uh, a soft skills approach because I believe that the technical aspect of whatever happened will get resolved. If there, there'll be new tooling, there'll be you know, new guidance, like all that will at some point take place. But how do you coordinate amongst people from your legal team, uh, your PR team, maybe your CTO, maybe the CEO, the general counsel, like how do you effectively communicate and have that narrative where everyone 
who's involved in the response process knows what's going on. And that level of understanding is challenging. Uh, something that I like to keep in my mind when I'm actually an incident commander during an incident is the three C's, stay calm, cool, and collected, Charles. That's what I try to tell myself because people are looking at the incident commander as the, the traffic cop in a way to sort of facilitate what needs to happen, how we should be responding, and, and executing the incident response plan as accordingly. So I, I, I think the idea that prevention never works is the fact that like, I will concede that battle. What I would like to do is increase my confidence around what I can detect that the business has identified as a business risk and how we can respond to that in a timely manner with the appropriate stakeholders on both the technical and non-technical side. I really like that. I think that is such a realistic approach and I am a big believer in the best way to sort of act in the workplace is to is to really acknowledge reality. Um, and it simply is reality um, that things will happen. Um, and I think the more prepared you are to, to take action when they happen, uh, it, it just, it's, it's brilliant. Um, it's funny, it reminds me of something that I'm experiencing in my personal life as a parent of an almost four-year-old. So in the past few months, we've been in the emergency room twice uh, and <laughs> and it's funny because to me, it's like, okay, I know how to drive there. I know what to pack in my daughter's backpack. I, I know, you know, there's, there's an important element of the way in which I conduct myself as we're on our way to the emergency room because my little girl is sort of looking to me to, to, to figure out like how should I think about this? How should I feel about this? Um, and so I think similarly where, you know, with, with preschoolers, you can't prevent stuff from happening, but when stuff does happen, you can have a pretty good plan to handle it. Um, and I just think uh, that's just something funny uh, that occurred to me, which, which I, I suspect you can relate to <laughs> and appreciate. Oh yeah. I definitely can relate to and appreciate that. Like, as, as you mentioned, like, I think that's a perfect analogy. It's like the, you know, as a father of two kids myself, like when something wrong happens, you know, and they're you're rushing to them as a parent, you know, your first goal is you know, you're, you're, you're always concerned and worried, but you also don't want to show an emotion that may cause them to be even more freaked out. You know, you try to reassure them that it's going to be okay. And, and just that same personal touch. And I believe even Colleen brought this up, like the, the ability to develop uh, relationships with people um, and be able to tap into that capital when needed, um, genuinely, and I'll use the word genuinely and thoughtful and intentional around that behavior is something that I personally believe is important, uh, something I personally try to model how I interact in the security space as a whole, and to provide that uh, positive security experience with people that I meet uh, in the security space and even more so outside of the security space. Awesome. I, there, there are two follow-up questions that I have with regards to detection engineering. One of them is with regards to taking it to the next level with security chaos engineering, and then following up on that, I want to ask you about practical tips that you have for our listeners about how to create a security culture of commitment and of authenticity. 
Hmm, that's okay. great question, I have to say. So with the security chaos engineering aspect, uh, some of the fundamentals and principles actually started at Netflix. And um, a colleague of mine, Aaron Reinhardt, uh, and um, we started thinking about like, how can we in integrate some of these principles of chaos engineering with security? And we came up with the idea that as much as systems are complex, that we have to have the ability to instrument and, and test and find out if our security beliefs actually operate in the way that we expect them to. And the only way to do that is to actually continuously test them, uh, continuously in instrument them to understand the expected outcomes that we either believe they're supposed to have or maybe unexpected outcomes that we weren't aware of them having. So the whole security cast engineering space is just uh, further advancing the principles of chaos engineering into the security space and having security practitioners sort of double down on the, like the test driven development of security, uh, whether it's code, infrastructure, training and awareness for uh, individuals within the company and making sure that the security bets that are being made are actually like causing a return or actually providing some level of value, some level of insight, instrumentation, and visibility. Um, and just uh, to follow up, uh, could you repeat the second part of the question, please? I'm more than happy uh, to repeat my second thought, which is, Charles, I'm very interested in your thoughts about creating a security culture of commitment and authenticity. So you talked about the communication between many stakeholder teams being really key, both during a response scenario, as well as just, I think, in general. And I'm wondering if you have any practical tips or advice to offer to our listeners with regards to how to create that. Yeah, so I, I, I will say from my experience, I'm going to preface this, like everything I'm talking about is from my experience, and hopefully this, my experience can be helpful for others. But one thing that my wife has always told me is to meet people with grace. And what does that mean, Charles? So what that means is that when you are engaging with someone, take the time to really listen to the perspective from where they're coming from. Because as security practitioners, I believe sometimes we suffer from the curse of knowledge. We know so much that when it comes time to explain something to our counterparts, we do them a disservice by not crafting a narrative that can be, uh, that is relatable. And by no means am I saying dumb it down, because sometimes that's what I hear in response. No, I am saying by acknowledging where another person is at, and if another person is coming to you acknowledging where they're at, like meet them with that grace to say, okay, I am going to help you on this journey. Let's go on this journey together. I understand that there's scaling issues here, but the, 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 the process that I'm thinking of is you hire people that you can also facilitate that type of conversation where the interaction between people, because I'm just focusing on people and behavior interaction, nothing about technical competency at this point, just the mere nature of interacting with the individual, respecting where they're coming from, from the, uh, the, the subject matter, 
and then working with them to push them forward. So I always try to meet people with that grace, understand that they're coming from a place where they're seeking to improve and how can I, as a practitioner in this space, give them the, the little seeds as we talked about earlier, to start planting those seeds so that every time I engage with them, authentically engage with them, genuinely engage with them, that I you know, sprinkle a little water, I talk to them, I make sure that you know, they're being fed in a way that will require them to do some growth when they leave. And that growth is part of like that self-reflective growth. So I look at every engagement with an individual as a way to push forward those security principles, uh, keep planting those seeds, and then keep nurturing them on their journey. I really, really like those insights. I, I love how thoughtful and purposeful you are with regards to your interactions with folks. And, and that leads me a bit to my next question, which is about risk measurement. Um, I think that in both our personal and our professional lives, you know, there are certainly technical aspects and quantitative aspects to risk, uh, but I think there are also subjective aspects. And I think that in reality, a lot of risk management happens based on feelings. Charles, what are your thoughts on how to define risk for a security professional? Very, very deep question, because I believe this is a, sp a space within security that from my perspective, we struggle a bit, which is the sort of reason why I flipped it with the whole detection engineering standpoint was if I can, if I'm in a particular uh, enterprise environment and if I can do analysis, understand what are the things that we're seeing, would that be the reason why would, we would make investments in those areas? Is that the business risk that makes sense to sort of buy down, abate, or, or the different other risk things you could do? <laughs> That's leading into the subjective part of it uh, because it's based on the experiences of the individual. And quite honestly, I know this is a space that there's people like uh, uh, Ryan uh, that's sort of pushing, uh, like how do we measure risk? How do we quantify the investment that we're willing to invest in? Or how do we quantify whether or not this particular risk will happen to the business? It's one of those things that I see security out of sight, out of mind. When things are great, nothing. As soon as something happens, it's what didn't you do and why? But once again, as a security practitioner, we're hedging ourselves against the multitude of attack surfaces that can happen and making almost an educated guess with some elements of risk tossed in there and personal experiences, which may be subjective in there to say, I believe that we should be investing in these areas. Yeah, I think you touched on a very important point, which is that sometimes what happens is that security professionals are tasked with the impossible duty of predicting the future. And when you know, none of us can predict the future, right? Um, and when we're tasked with that, um, it can it can be challenging in terms of people's general health and well-being. Um, I'd actually like to take our conversation in a direction that touches a bit on 
what you talked about at the beginning of today's podcast, which is before you developed your interest in computer science, you actually wanted to become a nurse because to you, there's something very satisfying about helping people to be healthy and working towards the well-being of people. In the security industry, I would say that we have a crisis when it comes to people's general health and well-being. How do you think we should approach this? How do you think we should think about this? What are, what are some of your thoughts on the state of the industry today from an emotional and mental health perspective? I think we're still early in that process. What I hope to see and continue to see is the fact that as uh, security leaders, especially those who are running security organizations, that it is tough. It is mentally draining, physically draining, emotionally draining. It, it impacts an individual on multiple fronts. But there is a reason why I believe as security practitioners that are leading out organizations that we choose to do this work. Uh, the, I believe the other counterpart to that is uh, enterprises and organizations recognizing that security practitioners and leaders need to be supported on all levels. Um, and how does that support look like and how are they feeding and nurturing that growth? It, I believe it's a very challenging time uh, with all the, uh, the data breaches that are happening. Like I always get this toss up like, what is the, the narrative that we say? The narrative you see is, no, we take security seriously, like dot, 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 dot. You can fill in the blank. How, does, how are we actually like treating that from an emotional standpoint? Like, are we really doing the right thing? And how does that start to manifest itself within an individual in regards to their mental health, their physical health? And then once an individual recognizes that, what are they doing to, to help solve that? I know for me personally, uh, I like to walk. Um, and, and listen to music. I'm a huge Diana Ross fan. I love Miss Diana Ross. And it's, it's a way for me to attempt to break down the pressures, the mental warfare, as I call it, that happens with security practitioners and, and security leaders when it comes to dealing with this uh, security grind day in, day out because it really is a grind. You are grinding to help explain a concept to individuals that may not understand it. While at the same time, trying to protect all the known things in the world to the best of your ability uh, against the business risk. And then at the same time, trying to uh, grow, mentor, hire new wave of security practitioners and provide experiences that will help their careers. And it's a very challenging space and as I mentioned, uh, it's, it's flat out hard. And being able to um, talk about that, share those uh, experiences with other secu security practitioners is one way to help with the mental side, but there's also a physical side that may not show itself up. And there are some, I guess, taboo norms within the security space around some of the events in terms of alcohol um, and behaviors that would not support that. So for me personally, uh, my, from my experience, I try to I take my walks and listen to Miss Diana Ross and then have her, uh, her beautiful sounds of music sort of calm me and take me to a good space. Uh, and definitely have friends in the community that I reach out to 
and some organizations that I'm a part of, such as Dev Color, that I reach out to to sort of help me on this journey because it's a hard path, but it's a path that I willingly walk because I do like helping. And security to me is just another way of helping uh, people grow and helping organizations grow. Thank you so much. I too am a huge Diana Ross fan. I love that you take walks. I love that you harness music to keep yourself well. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today on Humans of InfoSec. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you. If it's okay, could I just say one last thing? Please do. So there's a quote that I've been um, using in my head a lot um, from um, a book called Black Box Thinking. And it's sometimes what I use to orient myself. And it says that failure reveals a feature of our world we hadn't fully grasped and offers vital clues about how to update our models, strategies, and behaviors. And I, I look at failure as a great learning experience if you choose to see it as such. So thank you, uh, Caroline, for allowing me to be with you here today. And hopefully I'm making the right failures in which I'm learning from to continue moving in the security space. We appreciate your generosity in sharing your thoughts and your failures with us. Um, I think that by doing that, you know, not only are you able to learn as you go along, uh, but our listeners are as well. So thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.